Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Cowering under my duvet from yet another storm, Ed. Bit, mm. bit bored of it now, to be honest. Yeah, you really want one storm every like couple of years, not five storms in the course of uh, a month or whatever it is that, that the UK has been suffering through recently. Yeah, and I don't want to sound um, facetious. I'm really fortunate in that I haven't had any like structural damage. I mean, the flooding <clears> for some people is just horrific. It's it's awful. So I hope everyone's doing okay. Yeah, everyone stay safe. Uh, like as we've mentioned in previous storm-related chats, um, since moving to Florida, I've been through a few hurricanes and. They are never particularly fun. <laughs> There's uh, even, you know, like like you, I've, I've been very fortunate in that most of the time when there has been a storm, I because I live fairly far inland, it's, you know, you don't get much in the way of flooding and power cuts. Again, because I live in a kind of a metropolitan area, the power cuts tend to be fairly limited because those are the areas that get the, the most... Uh, power they that's they're the ones that get reconnected most quickly and but in the kind of like the rural areas of the state sort of where my parents lived like they've often after storms been without power for a week or more you know it can be uh incredibly awful and you'd see scenes of absolutely terrible destruction uh so yes please uh, anyone listening to this who's affected by the storm uh, remain stay- safe take whatever precautions you need Make sure you've stocked up on torches and batteries. That's the thing that I always uh, don't think about until <laughs> until it's needed. Uh, if, if only because you know you at least have some way of reading books without without which uh, I would go completely stir crazy. <laughs> uh, so we haven't got much in the way of news this week. It feels like a fairly quiet week, but. One of the things that happened last week that I think took a lot of people by surprise, not in the sense that it was a thing that seemed totally crazy or out of the question, but so much of the scale of it, was the success of the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, which came out last week and opened to $70 million in the US over the course of the four-day weekend, because it was a a holiday this week, uh, President's Day. And that was the biggest opening ever for a movie based on a video game. And it looks set to, at the very least, rival the final total for Detective Pikachu for one of the more successful video game adaptations to come out, certainly in recent years. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to talk about this because, yeah, we've talked about the Sonic movie a fair bit over the past six months or so in terms of its somewhat tumultuous production you know it it debuted its trailer last year was met with screams of terror because of the design of sonic that they used which was just really uh, unsettling and not particularly pleasant to look for they delayed the release they put in a ton of hours to fix it and then you know the didn't pay the people who did the work enough so the studio shuttered which is shitty in its own own way and the movie came out after all of that kind of concern and and you know all of the attention that it got and it's done uh, tremendously well so i would i was kind of wanting to talk about this in terms of like a thought experiment so (laughs) if the movie had come out at its original release date which was last november and it hadn't been fixed if they had just kind of posted through it essentially and just been like, no, we're not going to do anything. This is the movie. Do you think it would have done anywhere near as successful as it has? I think the money would be exactly the same, but the mm-hmm. but the tone of reception would be different. I think essentially we'd have another Cats on our hands. Right, okay. People would be going to kind of gawk. It would be real sideshow attraction kind of stuff of like, just how bad is it going to be? And it seems like they've managed to realise what they were actually tasked with doing in the first place, which was making a sort of passable 
like kids early teens family film rather than like a a freak show (laughs) Mm. um so i so i think they it's a reputation kind of saving deal rather than sort of like great artistic integrity i think there was just a big panic but i think it would have made the same if not more possibly because i think you'd get a wider audience who are like oh what is it going to be like Mm. so I think as a thought experiment it is really interesting because I don't think we've had something other than cats probably that's had such a public what's the word well in in terms of rebuke yes (laughs) rebuke is an excellent word or or even just kind of like laying out quite plainly mid mid production (laughs) or Mm. or kind of getting to a point of you know timelines sort of being leaked and and you know tom hooper was still working on cats to the two days or the day of release or something like that Mm. which is why mistakes were made possibly we don't know yeah i think there's nothing else that's been quite so as a u-turn of like of that day of like here you go everyone here it comes oh no wait we've heard you we're gonna go back and change it and just like an omni shambles behind closed doors maybe Mm. I think it would have made less but not by a huge amount Mm. I think there would have been still the car crash rubbernecking quality to it of a lot of people being like I want to see just how weird this is especially because in the movie as it exists now there's a whole uh, segment of it with a baby Sonic who is uh, incredibly cute. Uh, people want to Google Baby Sonic. He looks absolutely adorable, but I can only assume was less adorable in the original version because it would have been crazy if they had had that kind of huge disparity between what he looked like as a child and what he looked like as the kind of like, uh, like the adolescent or like ten-year-old version of him that appears in the later parts of the movie, and. I think people would have heard that and think, okay, I have to see this for myself. I have to kind of really get a sense for what this is. But I think that... And also it would have benefited from coming out in November when there aren't a huge number of those kind of big blockbusters. You know, you get big movies often will come out in December ahead of the Christmas rush. And November tends to be a lot quieter, which I think was why Sonic was put there because they thought okay this is somewhat atypical from a lot of stuff that gets put out so you know we could get one really good weekend out of this and then uh, just move on but I feel like it being pushed back to February helped them even more in that regard because in, as well as you know generating a lot of good press for them when they said hey we fixed the movie and everyone said oh that that looks less awful it also meant that it became the only kind of big family movie to come out since Jumanji 2 and Frozen 2 came out at Christmas time and I feel like that really kind of juiced the numbers a little bit like that took it from 40, 50 over 4 days which I think is what people were expecting to the 70 million that it ended up making Mm. Um, but yeah I also wonder if they had fixed the character earlier if they hadn't released the original trailer and the trailer that came out was the character as is now if they had kind of essentially realized early on that we they needed to use a different design i i kind of imagine that if they had released the kind of fixed version in november it probably would have done about the same because again there wouldn't have been that that they would have still had like a fairly prime release date and they would have presented a uh, somewhat more palatable product to people. For sure. I think you're right in terms of timing, Ed, because we're um, just coming out of half term mm. in the UK as well and there's not really an awful lot on its for that market. Um, yeah. And with terrible weather, it's impressive that people are still <laughs> hacking out um, to be to go out to be inside at least that will get people out because mm. otherwise yeah what else is in cinemas just now the majority is awards season catching up yeah yeah that's definitely the case over here as well like there's a bunch of 
fairly nondescript horror movies. There's the kind of awards winners that did pretty well at the Oscars that are kind of soaking up some of the adulation from that, most notably Parasite, which, as we mentioned last week, went into, or maybe a couple of weeks ago, um, went into more theatres last week to kind of really take advantage of the success. So it's been doing really well. It did like $7 million last weekend, which is a, was the best weekend it's had. It came out three months ago and has been available on on demand for about a month so that that film's clearly benefited hugely from winning best picture but you know there isn't really there anything there for you know a family to go out and have a good time in the movies uh you know unless they want to see frozen 2 again or they want to kind of be one of the seven people who has gone to see Doolittle. Exactly. Oh my god. And then my it'll be interesting to see what happens once Onward is released. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Which has got sort of nice reviews so far. Yeah, people are like, uh, it's alright. <laughs> it's it seems um not an absolute Pixar hit. And I remember watching the trailer for it ahead of Frozen 2 and just thinking, oh oh okay. But there's you know, a middling Pixar film is probably better than than most. Mm, although there was that terrible headline in The Guardian for the review of it, which was, it was something along the lines of, uh, Onwards is a Frozen for Boys. Oh, and just kind of... God, just no. such a Such a lazy framing. Um, and it's hard not to just kind of <laughs> see that and not respond, yes, finally. <laughs> film Films for boys. The yeah. things that have just not existed ever you know kids films aimed at a male audience that's not a thing apparently that has been the status quo for forever yeah finally uh, representation mm, oh speaking of onward and uh, representation that was also announced that the onward is going to have their first lgbtq character in a uh, gay monster cop cyclops yes. voiced, voiced by lena waith and that has been, I think, rightly met with mostly kind of shrugs because yeah. the general response to it has been, particularly amongst a lot of the, the gay writers and uh, cinephiles that I f- follow, is like, this feels very token in the sense that they have just gone, Let, let's give this character who has like one scene in the movie an offhand reference to them having a girlfriend and it not necessarily seeming like that much in terms of actual, you know, important representation. Mm. It's really just being, like, a thing that they can say, similar to, you know, the um, exclusively gay moment in Beauty and the Beast or whatever they said, or the one gay character in avengers endgame who is in the support group at the beginning, where it's really, it is such like crumbs from the table in terms of representation and also in the most cynical version being a character who has by all accounts not a very significant role is easily chopped out when you want to put the movie into countries that you know are not particularly accepting of gay rights as opposed to you know making the central character of the movie gay which would be a genuinely kind of brave stance as opposed to this which is like the safest kind of putting your toe in the water of representation option absolutely and it's not integrated like that was what um doctor who did brilliantly when russell t davis was under the helm yes you had main characters who were gay but you also had many sort of particularly i remember in certain kind of bottle episodes you'd have characters talking it's one where they're on a ship and they have to get off the ship, but they have to stay on the ship for some time. And I and I say this as someone who was a fan of Doctor Who, particularly around that era, but what sticks with me really clearly is one of the crew members sending a message to his husband and their child. Um, mm. And it's that integration, it's that complete everyday rather than, hey, we're doing a big mention. Yeah. And of course, it's also, you know, particularly um, because now finally uh, Frozen for boys but particularly because there was such (laughs) a big campaign about Frozen for Elsa to be queer 
mm. in some way, shape or form. And everyone being like, she's got trousers now. Maybe this is a sign. And then it's actually kind of great because Elsa doesn't have a romantic storyline at all, which mm. is actually more refreshing, I'd argue, than being like, let's just make her queer because, you know, we need a queer Disney princess. And a lot of Frozen, again, baked into it is this, uh, you thought you were going to get married to this guy you'd just met. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it, it manages to poke fun at tropes like that. Mm. So I felt like it. not everything needs to... It was nice that Frozen stepped away from kind of just going for what could be an easy but essentially very tokenistic development. Mm. And onward, it's just like, what, why? Why? And, you know, maybe then don't cast... Chris Pratt as he's still going to that incredibly homophobic church as far as we're aware no no okay mm. yeah I think it's it's that question of is it better to not have the gay characters but to have you know a queer subtext that people can kind of get something from than to just be kind of like do a real ham-fisted attempt at it mm. and because it feels like the people who want to read Elsa as being a queer character can still have that because there's nothing in the movie that kind of um, disproves that or any way. There's nothing arguing against it. But they also don't have to kind of sit through the really cringy elements of what would happen if the writers decided to kind of suddenly make that pivot and, you know, just completely botch it which i'm not saying they would necessarily do but there is that risk if you kind of suddenly are really try to turn into that sort of thing or turn into the you know kind of turn into the skid on it and run the risk of just alienating everyone mm. so we'll go into the uh, main topic this week and this was inspired by a tweet that you sent to me from uh, ben stevens who you know often on twitter people will post kind of prompt tweets you know where they just basically say hey you know i've been thinking about this thing about movies what do you think as well and and he was asking for examples of kind of non-verbal performances things in movies where an actor does something that has nothing to do with words it's to do with their physical performance with the use of the camera to elucidate something about a character and uh, i thought that was a really fun interesting topic so that that's what we're going to be talking about physical performances non-verbal performances moments in movies where the work of the actor in conjunction with you know all the other stuff to do with 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 filmmaking really convey something about the character in a way that is not just down to oh they they said something in the script that elucidated something about their their thought process and um, the first example that came to my mind for a movie we just talked about a second ago was in Parasite, which is a movie that I think has a lot of great physical performances in there, but also kind of has the added complication where as someone who does not speak any Korean at all and, you know, can't pick up on the nuances and what the characters are saying, so much of what is being... Um, conveyed in that movie for me certainly came down to the physical performances of the the actors who are able to and, and because it's a movie about people acting roles essentially and trying to deceive people so much of um so much has to be conveyed in just how they move through the space and how they interact or how they present themselves to other people in the movie versus you know how they present themselves to the members of their own family ditto ed i am not fluent in korean whatsoever but it's something that i really enjoy about cinema outside of english language which is pretty much the only language i'm really fluent in mm. basic grasp of german i'm back on duolingo i'm trying Anywho, when I'm not being um, hunted down by an incredibly benevolent green owl, watching cinema that isn't in my own language, for me, taking out my comprehension of the dialogue gives me somehow a purer cinematic experience in many ways. Mm. Because I am relying on vision and sound. Basically, every other element of mise-en-scene that is not dialogue that like in terms of plot in terms of just like performance and sinking into a world and how for me it becomes a very almost childlike experience 
because it feels mm. like watching the grown-ups in a way that you don't necessarily understand but you're observing so much more on this quite maybe we could call it pure maybe we could call it basic I don't know but it feels quite replenishing in a way that a lot of dialogue English speaking films don't for me because you do see how much of acting is actually about gesture <laughs> and expression and composition of the shot and where everyone is but I think that's it like how much a character comes across without understanding the dialogue obviously even though neither is speak Korean there's a lot in Parasite where even just the intonation of someone's voice you can tell how they feel mm. yes the the example for that that really leapt out to me was the um in the scenes that involve uh, Song Kang Ho's character and the kind of patriarch of the rich family that the mm. the Kim family inveigle their way into the world of because he plays the driver and he often has conversations with the with the, the father of the family with Mr. Park and the thing that I thought was really interesting about their conversations is that they're kind of the only instances in the movie where one of the parks really seems to f come close to figuring out that something is not right. There's a tension between them because, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Kim will say things like, and of course you love her after a fashion, and there is something in the way he says it, and there is something in the way that Mr. Park reacts to it that really communicates that, oh, this guy is saying something that's kind of, as they say, kind of comes up to walking over the line and there isn't really anything in the dialogue that indicates that it is just in the way in which they talk to each other the tone of the voice and also their body language like you can really see for mr park that whenever he uh, he has these conversations with mr kim his body language does become a little tense he does seem to offer up a sense of surprise that someone who works for him and is in this incredibly servile position within their relationship would kind of talk to him so seemingly so frankly and pretty much all of that is really conveyed in just how they relate to each other and those those are the parts in the movie that really stood out for me as like the most tense because they seem like the moments when things are going to start unraveling that the, the dad is not quite good enough to keep up the facade and can't help himself from just letting some of that rage kind of boil up through the through the mask mm. uh, and another moment from parasite that i really liked that's a little a much smaller one and, and kind of comes much earlier is when uh, uh choi woo six character uh kiwoo um has been hired as the tutor by the parks for their yes uh, to teach their daughter and he is talking to the mother and she's kind of like leading him out of the house and she talks starts talking about oh how her young son has had all these troubles with um art teachers and stuff like that and there's this moment where they're walking down the stairs and the camera kind of like tilts up to follow them and you get this really great shot of of kiwu kind of like very clearly in that moment putting together the plan that is going to be the driving force of the next like 40 minutes of the movie where he's thinking okay i this is a way that i could get my sister involved in this and from there you know it becomes this like series of connections that allow the, f the whole family to eventually be hired um but it's like such a small moment but it's such a great combination of an actor's performance of really showing someone having an epiphany through what they're doing on screen but also the way in which the camera really captures that sense of realisation it felt simultaneously like meme material mm -hmm. there are so many memes I think particularly the sort of uh, maths equations woman I guess I'm, I'm probably using the wrong <laughs> term but the kind of <laughs> the, the eyes moving as the calculations are being made and oh yeah yeah right yeah. like it's, it reminded me of that but also so many different iterations of larry david in curb your enthusiasm mm. that real kind of everything sort of the, the cognitions churning together yeah i feel like this has been a because so much of you know memes is is uh, consists of taking images or taking gifs like we have entered a phase of particularly online discourse where physical movements movements are to some extent prioritized more than 
words because you can convey so much like like you say that the larry david kind of like thing where he's weighing up two options and neither are particularly appealing you know where that gif of him going like is so endlessly usable when you're presented (laughs) with unappealing options and I feel like a lot of internet culture has really has always always been about images and macros and you know um, putting text onto things. But I really feel as if like the rise of GIF as a form of communication and of of elucidating an idea, and so many of them coming from pre-existing media has really benefited performers who are who have a certain expressiveness to them that can really convey an idea just through their movement. I agree. Reaction gifts are just... We can't underestimate how powerful that is. Mm. And that's why I think another one that I wanted to bring up precisely because of reaction gifts... Well, it's two, actually. It's um, Chris Pratt in his better days as Andy Dwyer... Um, with his kind of turn to turn to camera shock and pretty much the entire friends cast Mm. and but with with um particular honor going to matt leblanc because the way that he could be so elastic and immediate with joey within like three seconds there's a whole story going on in his face or at least even in a kind of like clowning sort of background like mm-hmm. just being as pure as possible because even though it's exaggerated it actually comes from a place of authenticity because Joey bless him is that simple <laughs> and that childlike so I think it's a great performance I guess that was the one thing we didn't really think of in News Ed apparently there's some kind of friends reunion but it's unscripted and James Corden's producing it so let's not count it as news moving on yeah yeah anything that can take us away from Corden uh... <laughs> please <laughs> Uh, although he could, he does a uh, have some physical business as Buster for Jones in Cats. <laughs> oh, physical business. That's a heck of a term. <laughs> yes, I suppose physical business wise. Yes, this is what we're this is what we're discussing. But yeah, and, and the, the, it says something that the the absolute worst moments in Cats. As someone who watched it and had a fantastic time, um, are absolutely his his and Rebel Wilson's ad libs. that's a movie that if it has any kind of like fun going for it it's the movement of the characters terribly shot though it is and like very obviously not um staged or choreographed with real any real kind of sense for how to visually tell a story but you know so much of it is about the physical movement of the characters so having the those two characters in particular take moments to just kind of tell very tired cats jokes in the movie cats is yeah that every time that happened it really kind of sucked the air out of the the theater when i want to watch it because yeah there's just nothing there's nothing funny about cats trying to be funny no what's funny what's funny about cats is it's just a crazy movie told in a weird way yeah and having a cat myself doesn't have to try to be funny just just Mm. is just look at one for long enough and they'll uh, give you plenty in uh, in the realm of memes still i think a movie again one that we we've talked about a little bit um on the show uh, there's a lot i think of moments in uncut gems that really make great use of the actors physical performances and mm-hmm. the one that really uh, stands out to me is the kind of baleful stare that eric bogosian gives when he's in the little security room towards the end of the movie <laughs> when he's just there staring absolute daggers at Howard and clearly not being able to understand quite how he's ended up in this situation and not really having any kind of way out of it and that that's one that I certainly have seen a lot of people uh, using over the last couple of days to uh, represent uh, uh, centrists and never Trump Republicans looking at the Nevada caucus results and things like that <laughs> yes um, <laughs> But I think that's one where you have an actor in Eric Bogosian who is, who has like wonderfully expressive eyes and this like wonderful, like a Walter Matthau style, you know, like really expressive face. And he's so good at just um, 
emanating, you know, whatever he's thinking at that moment. You used to also see a lot of that in his his role in Succession, where he is just constantly um, furious at the bullshit that the Roys are doing. Um, but like, I really feel as if in that moment, the stillness of it is what really makes that moment so eminently reusable and so fascinating to me. Mm. Uh, to go kind of somewhat earlier than you know to kind of talk about older examples uh, a performance again uh, kind of similar to what you're saying about Joey which is could not be further away from what this movie is but an example of an actor really selling a lot without saying anything and kind of seeming to go through a lot of emotions in a single scene for me is um, Bob Hoskins at the end of The Long Good Friday which is yes. one of my one of my favorite movies. I think one of the best British gangster movies ever. And for people who don't know, um, Bob Hoskins in the movie plays like an East End gangster who's trying to make this deal with the uh, the Americans with the mafia. And for various complicated reasons, the IRA are kind of messing it up for him. And the movie ends with him being kind of taken away in a car, possibly, presumably, to be killed, and him realizing too late that he has been put into this situation and the final maybe two minutes of the movie it's really long it's just him it's just a close-up of his face as he's looking around as he's like realizing that he's been completely outplayed and going through pretty much all of the five stages of grief for his own life at that moment where he's like anger and kind of seeing like then you suddenly see him trying maybe to bargain thinking is there a way for me to talk my way out of this and eventually you know eventually reaching acceptance and it's a real masterclass of performance from Bob Hoskins who again was someone who had an incredibly expressive face could really sell a lot without saying a lot and that for me is one of those performances that I've ever since I saw that movie for the first time when I was like 18 or whatever it's one of those moments that I keep coming back to and every time I see a movie end with like someone in a car kind of contemplating things that's the gold standard for me of someone who is really <laughs> able to just kind of work through emotions without saying anything and really conveying stuff just through their physicality yeah I mean that's incredible and I think the true core of emotions is probably show don't tell eh and mm. even you could it's not to say that you can't use dialogue to that effect as well but more often you're gonna feel it not not spiel it eh and speaking of endings that the the gold standard for me has to be knights of uh, um i always pronounce it wrong first time sorry knights of cabiria um mm. fellini's film um with julietta messina um, who plays yeah. um, a sex worker who goes on this very strange sort of journey and, and seems to have been, you know, constantly kind of pushed upon. And it's an absolutely beautiful film. And at the end, she is at possibly her lowest point, but comes out and walks into this great parade and there's dancing and singing and various merriment and she just starts to smile while still crying and turns mm. to the camera yeah and makes this like incredibly human expression i can't quite describe it because she's doing so many different things at once and yet it's this kind of acceptance or defiance or this kind of ocular embrace of just everyone who's been watching her this whole time and she turns to them in a way that I think Fleabag series 2 heavily references um, mm. which is this kind of a kind of reassurance of I'm alright, don't pity me and being quite open to being vulnerable and, and showing tears but having a certain sense of determination at what could be the most broken point oh, so many feelings and it, it leaves you with this kind of strange exhilaration. It's not necessarily uplifting because it is still very bittersweet, but there's just this real kind of emotional vertigo of like, oh, fuck, like she's looking right at me. She can see me. Mm. And which is not entirely dissimilar to the very end of uh, La Dolce Vita, um, yeah. which has a much eerier kind of not seen before character, but just the last shot of that is her sort of turning and making quite a weird smile at the end which again 
I mean, I wonder how much of Midsummer and Ariasta and a bit of that, maybe not quite like direct address and breaking the fourth wall, but again, like a very, a moment of realization or acceptance or understanding with a very creepy smile. There's quite mm. a few of those going about. Um, but it is quite amazing to end on that because you're not expecting it at all. And those were sort of older films. And I think we're so used now actually to have people look directly at us because we're so used to watching direct address on YouTube. Mm. And then, you know, even even in TV, you wouldn't necessarily have direct address unless it was news reading or, or weather. So, and it still retains that power, I think. You know, it seems to, it doesn't feel any less of that for me. I think it retains the power of how it felt at the time and it unfolds itself again in the present day. Yeah, I think that as well through documentary, I think has really kind of broken down that sense of direct address. Obviously direct address is always kind of a breaking of the fourth wall, but like that sense that... um, of it being like this massively transgressive thing because so many people have done done it and I think of like the work of Errol Morris I think has obviously done a lot to do this because of his use of the Interrotron and his whole thing of like having someone talk directly to you and you being able to kind of removing the sense of an interlocutor of of the interviewer taking the interviewer completely off screen and really creating that sense of you imagining that you know robert mcnamara is talking directly to you about all the terrible mistakes he's made over the course of his life like it really does feel as if um it can create a, a sense of connection instead of being a thing that distances you because you're not used to characters in a movie <laughs> like looking you directly in the eyes and talking to you I also think in terms of what you're saying about Knights of Kiberia, I think one of the great things about movies that do trust their actors to just use the physicality is I think that you are often able to present a kind of complexity that maybe would get ironed out if you were just going off of what's written or off just dialogue because you can have people go through these emotions like very, very suddenly in a way that you know, if you have to write it, would maybe kind of deaden it a little bit and feel as if, like you say, you're, you're, you're telling instead of showing in that respect. And something like the ending of The Graduate, I think, does this incredibly well, you know, where mm. they're sat on the bus and they initially have this burst of elation and then as they're sitting there, that disappears and they start realising they may have blown up their entire lives. Yeah. And I feel like that, whole sequence would be so less impressive if they were and so less effective rather if they both sat down and then suddenly Dustin Hoffman starts saying that was great yeah that was great what have we done and like it would be it'd be funny no doubt if you had that because you know like yeah. was, it was a very funny but Henry was very funny but you would not have that sense of disquiet that I think colours the end of that movie and the whole point is that how well are they actually going to be able to communicate with each other Mm. they're both having their individual realizations and they're sort of looking to each other politely and it's a thing of well you've done this big brave thing but are you not just as suburban as your parents are you are you not just going to be like again these sort of repressed waspy characters have you really broken free and i love Mm. that i love that that just tinges the whole film and just gives you a little bit of kind of salt in what's meant to be the prize of these two crazy kids managing to work out despite everything i mean yeah what next also like i mean i like to think they just think oh god what are we going to do about christmas (laughs) (laughs) i always liked the story about you know people would ask mike nichols what happened to them after the movie ended and his response always was they become their parents and everyone would always apparently get very angry <laughs> for saying that because <laughs> I think people didn't want to kind of have that um, sense of like, oh, they've escaped this kind of like drudgery um, uh, pinpricks, you know, kind of like have it deflated. But obviously that is that is in the text. You know, their reactions are 
so complicated in that moment and so much of that is just conveyed in their kind of slowly drooping faces <laughs> as they're kind of uh, overwhelmed by the enormity of what they've done and uh, yeah I, again I feel like so much of that could just be played off as like a silly joke if that was how the movie resolved itself whereas instead it has this weird seriousness to it that the rest of the movie also kind of has because you know I think it's it's a movie that is very interested in exploring the mores of the time and kind of pinpricking all of the hypocrisies of, of kind of American suburbia but it really feels palpable in that moment because of you know the silence of it the sound of silence uh, of the the moment oh that's very nice Ed I had that hadn't even occurred to me lovely about singing about silence as well the irony of one irony but you're right and in terms of older examples it's funny that we, mm. we seem to keep coming back to or at least the ones that seem to have really stuck with us mm. seem, seem to be older but jumping back to Julietta Messina just for a second the entirety of her performance in La Strada mm. I can't pick just one moment like she is playing a clown but also Fellini wrote a lot about how Messina inspired him in terms of her humanity and her kindness. And she has the most incredibly open, expressive face that seems quite mm. innocent, but isn't childlike. Yeah. It's really quite spectacular how so much plays out on her face that could seem, it's not, it's not weak it's not it's not mm. kind of there's just a real shiningness to her and then that also made me think of Viva Servi where we have the late great Anna Karina as Nana going to see Theodore Dreyer's um, The Passion of Joan of Arc mm. and we have this incredible kind of refraction so instead of looking directly out to us and, and directly addressing us there's an an inference <laughs> and an indirect like association of Nana mimicking what we're doing and having someone watching a film. We're, we're watching a film, someone watching a film. And mm. it's such a classic moment. I know I am the absolute kind of um, film studies graduate talking about French New Wave. It's gloriously pretentious, I know. But Viva Savi, I think genuinely is just still such a brilliant film. Um, and this sequence in particular where we cut between Dreyer and Karina's reaction of it and that she is prompted to cry as she sees Joan of Arc crying she sees this kind of great self-sacrifice this ultimate existential responsibility for one's life and a cause greater than oneself um, all very big post-war you know um, and but and it's almost like the, the quality of the black and white is in, in Dreyer and in Viva Savi is different and yet they do seem to be having Karina is looking to <laughs> um, Joan as she is being presented, and Joan's not quite looking back. And I just think that is so powerful that sequence because it shows so much about how Nana is as a character at that point in terms of her emotional arc, but the kind of meta awareness of being in a cinema and watching that. And what comes from that, I found still immensely powerful, um, mm. and and still and still do from the first time I watched it up until now. It always gets me. I think um, watching watching people watching films or watching performance or watching art in movies, I think can be really powerful because you are getting that you're getting the vicarious feeling of seeing them experiencing this thing and going through these emotions whilst you yourself are also experiencing the art that they're experiencing yeah and so you're getting this twofold burst of emotions kind of hitting you and and you speaking about vives of there reminded me of the end of margaret the uh oh my kind of god Logan movie yes they're, oh. watching the, they're watching the opera yes and so much of that sequence is about uh, Anna Paquin and Jay Cameron Smith reacting to the art that they're seeing which is also inspiring them to think about the things that have happened to them over the course of the movie and the strains in their relationship and this 
you know, the general chaos of post 9-11 New York and all this stuff that Lonergan's exploring is all kind of coming up in that and you see so much on their face and also, you know, I believe it kind of climaxes them with like them grabbing each other's hands and there's this like moment of physical connection between the two of them and emotional release and at the same time that you're seeing all this, you're processing this, you're also hearing this great music being played as well and you're watching the performances they're seeing it and that that to me i think is like a really great example of a great a great two great actresses but also a great filmmaker knowing how to interweave all of these different things to create uh, this moment that's really complicated but also like really cathartic in a really kind of primal way I couldn't agree more and that has made me think of Thunder Road Jim mm. Cummings film and the very last sequence of that where he takes his daughter to the ballet and it's her face as she leans that little lean forward in that really she needs to get closer to it she's immediately feeling such a connection with it and she's just in awe and it's almost like a reflex like she's not even consciously choosing to lean forward and him realising this continuity between his daughter and his mother who had the dance studio and that you know he couldn't get the dance studio together but now he's with his daughter and the the crying again that he has which is this mix of it's very bittersweet so it is a mix of kind of grief and or i think just jim cummings in the entirety of that film it's as much as the dialogue is great it's used sparingly and so much mm. of what he does is through physicality and the sequence where his daughter is with him and she comes to stay he can't do a clapping game that she loves mm. and then in the morning they do it and he does it absolutely perfectly and she just gives him a little nod like okay you're right you're, you're actually a contender you may be a cool guy dad <laughs> and she leaves and he goes upstairs and you just see this crudely drawn outline of hands printed up on the like tacked up onto the wall and you realise he's been practising all night just so he can do that mm. like that whole sequence and the storytelling and the character development without necessarily exposition you just see it and you infer and, and doing the work oh oh it gives me shivers it's great you talking about um, just kind of like that uh, seeing a moment of revelation also reminded me of one of my favourite moments of just pure physical acting in a movie in one of my favorite movies which is even more remarkable because one of the two people in the moment is not acting because they're a baby is um the character of martin blank looking in the baby's eyes in gross point blank whilst under pressure plays which is this incredibly pivotal moment for him you know this, this guy who's spent most of the last sort of 10 years of his life killing people either for in the army or you know as a, as a hitman and who has gone back for his high school reunion and he's got this kind of like he's having this this crisis you know he is wondering if uh he has you know if there's maybe something more that he could be doing with his life and he looks into this baby's eyes and is cutting between his face, you know, John Cusack's face, as he's looking into the baby's eyes and the baby's face looking back, back at him. And it's this really powerful moment in ways that are kind of hard to articulate because the character, the, you know, the actors themselves are not articulating anything. You're just, you just know, oh, him looking into the eyes of this child is instilling, as I think... Um, uh, to Dan Aykroyd says later on uh, a new a newfound respect for life into him but uh, you're they're not verbalizing that in the moment it is just a thing that is happening and you can completely understand it emotionally in the moment because of his reaction and yeah the the baby is also just doing phenomenal work really really <laughs> top notch really top notch staring but um, that's that's another case where you know the, you have the combination of this wonderful euphoric song playing in the background, and kind of cresting at the moment where he seems to have his his realization. And I feel like that's again kind of an idea that would be you could convey that in dialogue, and they do kind of jokingly convey it in dialogue later. But it wouldn't have anywhere near the emotional kick if they tried to put it into words and make it feel serious. It feels way more effective because they're not putting it on paper and having someone say it it's just you are inferring it just from what 
John Cusack is doing in the moment. Mm, mm. Can you think of any filmmakers who are especially good at using actors in physical spaces? I I had a few for Spielberg, as someone mm. we also talked about last week in terms of terrifying us as children. But uh, I really feel as if, you know, the thing that makes so many of his movies work, not just because... Yeah, it, yeah, obviously they have like the spectacle and the um, special effects in a lot of them but what makes them work in ways that don't work for basically any of his um, impersonators or the people who have tried to take lessons from him is that they're not as good as at capturing awe as he is like he is very good at capturing a palpable sense of a character's emotion in the moment and that they're, they're big example obviously dr alan grant seeing the um brachiosaurus for the first time where he just kind of like stands up takes his glasses off and Mm. there's this real sense of he can't believe what he's seeing him grabbing laura dern's head and making a turn to look and then both staring agog you know like so much of that is just conveyed through their performances that they're seeing this incredible thing they never thought they would ever get to see um but also um Chief Brody realizing that the shark attack is happening, which is uh, uh, conveyed oh, no, through yeah. the wonderful contra zoom on his face, which is obviously partly cinematic technique because the contra zoom is something that immediately destabilizes everyone, but also it's just like the way in which Roy Scheider like looks up and really conveys this like it almost seems like the color is draining from his skin, even though it's not, because he's conveying this sense of oh shit the worst thing that i could have imagined happening is happening right now and there's nothing i can do to stop it that is probably the most iconic reaction <laughs> ever mm. yeah and and the what's amazing about that is that is that it's this absolute um symbiotic relationship between the camera movement and the expression like mm. it's so perfectly timed like they are working together as one and that unity is what makes it such a striking and iconic sequence. I'd have to say, for me, in terms of directors, where's Anderson? Mm. Because the thing that Anderson has done, I would say from like Royal Tenenbaums on, is create this very standard, everyone's very deadpan, but everyone mm-hmm. does bring something slightly different to it. And yeah the rhythm and inflection of how characters move like it they're quirky films because people literally quirk you know there's there's a kind of monotone to their expression and their line reading but yet there's such scope for physical comedy in particular because of setting mm. such a I don't want to say flat but like it's a very it's a very flat base and just thinking of particularly in Grand Budapest Hotel I think Ray Fiennes is wonderful and he does mm. come across as so much more of a raconteur because he doesn't have to do a lot because everyone else is being is very dampened he can actually come across as quite natural but the contrast is that he is incredibly vivacious um, mm. and he does have more of a kind of sing-song inflection to his voice but just where he is standing there in front of the police and then just bolts (laughs) (laughs) and then we stay and we let it kind of him run around and I think Anderson understands the value of staying still and having those contrasts Mm. of movement and things but I think Bottle Rocket and it's I just always think of Owen Wilson on the little (laughs) it's like is it like a BMX bike or a little scooter yeah 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 it's just his little kind of very childlike still very hopeful pure kind of movement and I think Anderson understands the value he can he is so he is such a musical filmmaker and I think his films are essentially symphonies like they've got incredible soundtracks but he has that musicality to it Mm, I think he's also he's someone who really understands the comedic value of a completely uncool fight yes um, of an action scene that is not in any way meant to convey oh this is awesome it's to be like 
these are a bunch of idiots who don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> I think you see that a lot in the shootouts that take place in the Grand Budapest Hotel where people are just kind of like shooting guns and not really hitting anything. Yes. <laughs> or Life Aquatic has a couple of really good ones. You know, the uh, when Steve Zissou is... Um, fighting back the pirates on the boat and it's just him kind of like you know middle-aged bill murray running around with a gun just kind of screaming <laughs> or them attacking the hotel to rescue jeff goldblum towards the the tail end of the movie i think he really understands how there is something incredibly funny to stripping away the artifice and the sense of danger or violence and replacing it instead with this sense of people just kind of flailing around which also you know when terrible things do happen does i think add a, an extra sense of melancholy to it when you're like ah oh, shit that character i like has died in a horrible way in this movie that was otherwise so kind of like light-hearted mm, mm. and also um something that anderson likes to do a lot is he does a lot of direct to direct address of characters looking directly at the camera which he has freely admitted he stole from jonathan demi <laughs> something that he really likes to do and a movie that i think is filled with wonderful physical performance and moments of physical performance and and what we're talking about in terms of using the camera to convey meaning is silence of the lambs um obviously the kind of the most i think the one that's become the most iconic in recent years because again it's incredibly memeable is clarice starling standing in the elevator surrounded by men and nothing but men who are all much taller than her, mm-hmm. which conveys a lot, but also in just in the image, but also in what Jodie Foster is doing in that moment, in that you have this sense that she is intensely aware, as Clarice Starling, of her position within the FBI and how much of a male-dominated space it is. So she has to project this sense of toughness because otherwise people won't take her seriously, and that really kind of lasts throughout the rest of the movie, where there is this tension between her not wanting to present a sense of being scared, even though terrifying things are happening around her, and having to put on this front of being the toughest person in the movie because no one else is going to get anything done unless she does it, whilst also still feeling incredibly vulnerable, which I think you also see during the finale in Buffalo Bill's house, where the lights go out and so much of the finale of the movie, or the climax of the movie, rather, is plays out on her face as she's walking through the dark and you see her just through buffalo bill's uh, night vision goggles and the other moment in science of the lambs which i think is the moment that kind of it's not the moment that won the movie it's oscar but i think it's the moment that made it iconic and which really has allowed it to remain is anthony hopkins just staring uh, standing in his cell i think that's a movie that really understands the creepiness of you have this like real slow build-up of Clarice Starling going through the cell block having horrible things said to her as she's walking along and you know the cells at the end of it so yeah she has this real long walk and then walking around the corner and then the creepiest thing is that he is just standing there present and correct and present uh, projecting a sense of complete calm and control in mm contrast to her and her sense of unease at this whole assignment that she's been given and i think that that's a movie across the board that really understands the value of of physical performances completely so we'll end this episode we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week so i'm probably very behind and this is news only to me but ed are you aware that oxford university their students union record and post all of their Q&As and addresses on their YouTube channel. Uh, I was not aware that they did it for all of it. I know that they do it for a lot. Do it for pretty much all of it. Now, uh, there's some there's some questionable people uh, who have been invited <laughs> to give the address and Q&A, but there's also absolutely um, chock tons of brilliant people. Um, I particularly enjoyed the Andrew Scott one because i just think he's one of the best people on the planet um there are just so many really interesting talks um what's also really fun is i like to play oh guess which one was before brexit um (laughs) because they go way back 
um, years and years and years. Um, Armando Inucci was also particularly good. But there's so many different people. Like, there's an hour and a half one with Nick Offerman, which I'm definitely going to watch as my treat tomorrow. Emily can have a little, a lot of Nick Offerman as a treat. Um, so I was just amazed. I think it's a really interesting archive. Um, just avoid all the fascists. Okay, well done, kids. <laughs> I am going to recommend a book that I read this week called We've Got People by Ryan Grimm, who is the um, uh, DC Bureau Chief at The Intercept. And it's a book about the uh, kind of tracking the long arc of the progressive populist movement in the US that is obviously kind of most recently most notably is has, has been represented in the forms of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez but he kind of covers it from Jesse Jackson's insurgent presidential campaigns in the 1918s the Rainbow Coalition and it's this really wonderful thorough exhilarating account of just how much energy has kind of been uh, has kind of always been there for left progressive causes in the US but has rarely been tapped into um, and I, I just found it to be just an absolutely thrilling read particularly in terms of talking about also it talks about things like Harold Washington's um, upset pre- uh, mayoral win in Chicago in the 1980s which was this real seismic event where they beat the Chicago political machine that had been in power for so long and it's kind of had uh, effects that have resonated onwards as the people who worked on that campaign and in his administration have gone on to other roles and yeah I just think it's for, for anyone who I think is wondering about where you know Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are coming from uh, or and where the energy of that has come from it's a really great exciting history and it's well worth checking out it's uh, again that is we've got people by ryan grimm if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm all the usual places rate us reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me bye